0: They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Welcome to In Town. Good morning again. And uh, if you're new here, we're going through a short series on the church, essentially asking... Why does in-town exist? And this morning we're looking at four ingredients or four characteristics of a healthy church. And then next week we'll actually ask the question and hopefully answer it of why does in-town exist in a short sermon. Uh, And then we'll be beginning a study of Galatians. So I hope that you can join us for that. That will take us through the fall and into Advent. Let me pray for our time as we get started this morning talking about the church. Dear Lord, we do want to be a church that is healthy, and that involves so much, and it involves more than we could possibly conjure up on our own. We need to not only hear from you, we need to hear your voice, we need to hear your instruction, but we need grace, we need strength, and we need power to walk in the way that you guide us. Father, for some of us here, the church has not been the most amazing experience. We have scars, we have wounds. Maybe we left church a long time ago and only recently have found ourselves back in the pew. Some of us are very skeptical that the church as an institution could bring anything positive into their lives and into the world. Wherever we find ourselves this morning, would you meet us? Would you meet us with your grace? Would you tell us you love us? And Would you guide us as a church into a place of health and vibrancy and vitality, a place that brings new people into your church, just as these churches seem to have done. Lord, by your strength we pray, and we pray that you would guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have read um, Ellie Wiesel's book, Night, uh, in high school or middle school. I missed it in middle school, but read it in seminary, actually, as a part of a pastoral theology class. And it's one of those books that you can't forget. And I know I cried through many parts of it. It's devastating. It's the story of a little boy in a Nazi concentration camp and his relationship with his dad and his relationship with a god who has, in his mind, forgotten Ellie. Well, he writes this. Wasn't it dangerous to lower one's guard, even for a moment, when death could strike at any time? Those are my thoughts when I heard the sound of a violin A violin in a dark train where the dead were piled on top of the living. Who was this madman who played the violin here at the edge of his own grave? Or was it a hallucination? It had to be Juliak. He was playing a fragment of a Beethoven concerto. Never before had I heard such a beautiful sound. In such silence. How had he succeeded in disengaging himself to slip out from under my body without feeling it? The darkness enveloped us. All I could hear was the violin, and it was as as if Juliak's soul had become his bow. He was playing his life. His whole being was gliding over the strings. His unfulfilled hopes, his charred past, his extinguished future. He played that which he would never play again. I shall never forget, Juliak, how could I forget this concert given before an audience of the dead and dying? Even today, when I hear that particular piece by Beethoven, my eyes close, and out of the darkness emerges the pale and melancholy face of my Polish comrade bidding for well, farewell to an audience of dying men. It's not the most rousing, inspiring piece to introduce you to the church and what we're to be about. It's actually a very sad, but a powerful image, stark contrast, such darkness and such light, such horror, and such beauty, such silence, and such singing. The song that is performed is not a Pollyanna type of song, a wish. It's not even all that hopeful, but something is strong and powerful and majestic. It's God-glorifying. It's Beethoven, something strong enough to enter into that dark moment and actually challenge it. According to Luke, who's the writer of our passage, that violin, that song, if you will, the concerto in the middle of that terror, that horror, the reality of the world is a picture of the church. And it's a picture of you. In the midst of tragedy, in the midst of horror, of desperation, where it almost feels suffocating, we as the church are called to enter into that darkness and invoke something that is beautiful in the midst of a dark world the gospel of luke tells us the story of jesus it tells us of all that he began to do and to teach and the book of acts is the sequel he writes that to tell of how jesus continued to show up in the life of the early church and that it changed the church his presence in the church through the holy spirit changed them in four dimensions and so we're going to look at, at four characteristics of a healthy, growing church that has a song, that has a voice that can speak into the darkness of our world. So first of all, first dimension is upward. They have an upward perspective. Everyone, verse 43, was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. They were an awful church. They were filled with awe. the immediate reason was because of the miracles that were being done. But you see, the miracles are done to point to something else. They were filled with awe because they knew that the crucified and risen Jesus was actually present in their community. He was still alive and present, though ascended to the Father. That in a tangible way, He was there. He was there in these signs and miracles. And the good news of Jesus, the good news of Christ, the, that is, that is that God is notoriously and openly active in the world. The church is not the place where people come to seek God. On the contrary, the p- church is the place where people are sought by God. Worship is the worship of a God that takes the initiative in seeking people. And the miracles communicated to them that God was seeking them and that He was seeking others through them, that He was actively and notoriously present in their lives. They were, therefore, awestruck. They were filled with awe that the God of the Old Testament would visit them in the person of Jesus and then continue to visit them in the person of the Holy Spirit. But you see, they were awestruck. But instead of terror, instead of fear, it produced glad hearts it produced sincere hearts that led them to care for one another you see this upward perspective led to an inward concern verse 44 they had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all to everyone who had need that makes me a bit uncomfortable does it does it you well Most American commentators are pretty uncomfortable with this verse as well because they spend a great deal of time sort of deadening and flattening out what that means. Luke couldn't possibly be challenging our American economic system. And, of course, elsewhere we read in that passage that the wealthy do sell possessions when needs arise. So it's not as if everyone just liquidates all of their possessions when they become a Christian. But what does it mean? And we shouldn't take comfort too quickly. Because what it does mean, in the very least, is that they saw, as they became a Christian, as they entered into the church, they began to see their possessions through the lens of other people. They saw their belongings through the lens of their belonging to the church. And if you're a Christian, what this means is that your stuff, your possessions, isn't real, aren't really yours at all. That you've been given management You've been given stewardship over them. But if you've encountered Jesus, you begin to look at the resources that you have with other people in mind. In the mid-300s, the Roman Emperor Julian was trying to scale back the Constantinian Revolution where Christianity was made the official religion of the Roman Empire. And he called Christianity atheism. He thought it was terrible, and he wanted to return the empire to its, its Roman roots and its values. And in order to diminish Christianity, what he did was very strange. He instructs the high priest to actually imitate Christians, to imitate them in their concern for others. He says to his high priest, why do we not observe that it is the Christians' benevolence, their care for the graves of the dead, and (laughs) their pretended holiness in their lives that have done the most to increase atheism, the most to increase Christianity? For it is disgraceful that when no Jew has to beg, and the impious Galileans, that is Gentile Christians, support not only their own poor, but they support ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. Teach those of the Hellenic faith to contribute to public service of this sort. In other words, do you see why they're converting to Christianity? It's because no one among them is poor. There may have been poor, but they see their resources as belonging to one another, and so they alleviate the burdens that are shared in that community. And they do so to such a degree that people are looking at them from the outside and saying, I want to be part of that. And if we're going to have people return to the Roman values, we need to emulate that. They're Upward perspective created this inward concern that was absolutely compelling and countercultural. But there's also a downward dimension. There's a downward dimension to their faith. Their sharing was not enforced, it was voluntary. These Christians wanted to, they were glad to share. And this only happens when the gospel begins to take a deep root in someone's life. That And for that to happen, there needs to be a significant downward dimension. What did they do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. But notice, and we need to think about this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and their number grew every day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and they enjoyed the favor of all people. Those two things don't normally go together, at least in our expectations, because people who grow in knowledge, churches that are really concerned about theology, tend to be sort of austere and off-putting. How do these things combine? What we see in this church and in these homes is that the wall was not high, but the well was very deep. The wall was not high. You could get into the church easy. You could come in and visit. You could come in and belong before you believed. The wall was not high, but once you got in, the well was very deep. The church had these permeable boundaries. They were open and welcoming to their friends and neighbors. Their doctrine, their depth didn't create a high wall between them and the outside world. It was easy to get over the wall, but here's the catch. You couldn't come over the wall and into the church and not be changed. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now churches often do a good job in our modern context that we either do a good job at instructing the saints but with very little outreach and inclusion or we do a really good job at outreach and inclusiveness but there's not much spiritual change, there's not much depth, there's not much understanding of the historic Christian faith. This biblical model which Luke is giving us here, it seems that we don't get to make that distinction. We don't get to have that choice. We have to be deep and welcoming. We have to be orthodox and missional and inclusive. Those two things must go together. You see, these people were growing downward. They had deep roots in the historic truths of Christianity. Anyone could come in, no matter where they were coming from, but they couldn't stay there They could come in with all of their problems and all of their brokenness and all of their sin, but once they came in, they were changed. Why? Because they met the risen Jesus. They met God. God was present among them, and so they were awestruck. People came in from wherever they could, wherever they were, but you couldn't help but be changed if you came to those churches. Now, finally, fourthly, true theology, if you grow deep in the apostles' teaching, if you grow deep in the gospel, because it connects you to Jesus, doesn't just propel, propel you downward, but it propel, propels you outward. And so finally, we need to see this outward perspective that they had. Now, football season is upon us, Thankfully. We watched the game last night, and in the pre-games, everyone talks about impact players. Who's going to be the impact players of these games? And they usually put up pictures with two or three, watch for these people because they're going to change the outcome of the game. Well, these churches that Luke is talking about, that gathered in the temple and then gathered in the homes, these are impact players. They're impact churches. Verse 47, they were praising God and having favor with all the people And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They gathered weekly in order to to be scattered into their homes and into their workplaces, into their neighborhoods. They gathered to grow deep in the apostles' teaching and then scattered in order to embed themselves in relationships with people outside of the community of faith. The Lord was adding to their number, but these people weren't just magically showing up on the doorstep. They were engaged with people who were already there, being invited and welcomed in. What the church has historically called evangelism, I believe, is less about, first of all, getting people to convert and more about walking alongside people so that they can witness Christianity at work. It's a a proposing of Christ inside of a trusting relationship rather than the imposing of Christ through coercive words and manipulative relationships. And if you're here this morning and you're a non-Christian, you haven't come into the faith, then the church probably has a lot to apologize to you because your sense of Christian evangelism, of outreach, is probably more coercive. It's probably more of where the church is looking down at you and asking you to change and become like us. But you see, Jesus made himself known not by imposition or coercion, but by entering into vulnerable relationships.